Welcome back to the Acro Files. Our listeners know that the American College of Real Estate Lawyers is a national organization of 1,000 distinguished practitioners fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in development, financing, and investment in real estate. We continue our series of podcasts with leading individuals in commercial real estate who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions for the future. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Roy March, CEO of Eastill Secured, the global real estate investment bank, and the consigliere to most every senior executive in the industry. Roy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we chat about your incredible career at Eastill, let's roll back the tape a bit and talk about where you grew up, what influenced you to focus on real estate, and how you got to Eastill. Right. Well, as most of you uh, know, I never have grown up, so um, I've got that going for me, and I never intend to at the end of the day. But I was hatched in South Sacramento, um, and I joke that it was so far on the other side of the tracks that you could not hear the trains. Um, that may be not a great reference for people in the next generation, but uh, most of you who've been around for a while would, would understand that. And uh, so I grew up in South Sacramento, and uh, I went to a public high school, ended up going off to uh, University of California uh, at Davis. Um, at the time, in 1974, when I graduated from high school, uh, we were in the middle of an energy crunch. And uh, at that moment in time, um, while uh, the uh, it seemed as though the energy uh, embargo and energy crisis was going to be uh, around for a while, my counselor suggested that I might pursue a chemical engineering career. Um, and the closest one at home, because I'd lost my father uh, when I was 17, the year before I graduated and wanted to be closer to home, um, I went to UC Davis, uh, which had a chemical engineering program. And um, after, this is gonna kill the academics, but after two quarters of academic probation, um, I decided I needed to pursue a, a potentially different career or a potentially bomb out of of college. Being the first to have gone to college in my family, that was not a uh, a, a, a favorable outcome uh, for me. So I literally leafed through my uh, <clears throat> course catalog and saw that uh, I could apply the the, the uh, courses that I'd taken and still get through with uh, uh, a potential degree um, somewhere else. And so I embarked upon um, a, a spring semester, spring quarter of um, general education. Let's put it, what we used to call the MIC uh, courses. And amongst those was uh, a uh, microeconomics course. And uh, the gentleman who was a hippie, who I thought was a TA, was a Princeton University professor who was teaching uh, microeconomic principles. And it seemed as though when you put a dollar sign in front of those simultaneous equations, that uh, something seemed to click for me. Got your attention. I got my attention for sure. And uh, having uh, no idea what to do with an economics degree, as it turns out, I met my future wife uh, in one of those uh, genetics 12 courses, uh, the MIT courses in that spring. And her father was a business person. And I asked him what you do with economics. And he said, you go into business. And I said, what's business? Having grown up in a frayed blue collar uh, neighborhood and environment, and so he said, well, maybe you might want to consider going to business school to figure out what business is all about. So I quickly leafed through um, kind of what the requirements were. And of course, my aspirations were high. So I looked at the top schools that uh, had 
master's of business programs associated with them and uh, <clears throat> decided that I was going to embark upon that. And so uh, I, I converted my major into economics uh, at UC Davis. And uh, it began kind of a journey, if you will, because uh, in order to get into these schools, you had to have either great grades or great test scores, hopefully the combination thereof, neither of which uh, I was going to uh, qualify out of. And, and what it was going to be work experience um, at the end of the day. So I set out to uh, put together as many uh, pieces of uh, what I consider to be pertinent uh, activities from starting a, a fraternity, uh, colonizing it on the university because I didn't want to go through the hazing program, to ultimately uh, getting fraternities on campus to participate in a, a newly formed Big Brothers association to, uh, in essence, uh, provide support for uh, uh, young boys who had no father um, and created that and started a, uh, a uh, company with some friends um, as I was doing a, a thesis, uh, an honors thesis in, um, uh, in economics and, um, and, and began down that path, uh, got involved with student government uh, and the like. And then in my... Uh, my, my good fortune was that uh, in uh, I, I had a friend who was going to be spending a summer in San Francisco house sitting. And uh, I was able to, again, through my father-in-law, who uh, we'll get to at some point about most admired people in my life uh, and mentors and, and influencers, um, happened to have gone public with uh, Kidder Peabody, which was uh, a, uh, in a white shoe investment bank um, that was uh, was uh, based in uh, New York, but had a San Francisco presence. And uh, <clears throat> I was able to secure a summer uh, intern program or an, an job getting sandwiches and coffee, uh, um, basically. Um, but I was, that was my big experience. And at the same time, to throw something else on my resume, I got a real estate license along with a bunch of blue haired uh, retirees. Uh, and uh, um, here, I say that now with my own blue hair. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, I ended up getting a real estate uh, license at the same time that I was getting this extensive uh, experience in, um, uh, at, uh, <clears throat> at uh, this investment bank. And as it turns out, there was then a job opening uh, for the Associated Students, uh, which was to become the business manager of the university. And it was a, uh, a prime opportunity for me to, to, in essence, get that last little piece, I thought, of my business experience uh, together. So I became the uh, head of uh, the, the, uh, and the business manager of the ASUCD, and that had 50 different units from the bus system to uh, the radio station, um, uh, the uh, concerts, the bars, the restaurants, the bike stores, and notably the uh, note-taking service. And um, I, uh, I proceeded to uh, then have 2,000 people and 50 different uh, units um, that required my signature in order to uh, um, ultimately spend money and uh, begin a budgeting process and all the rest. And so that was my then um, uh, beginning of my senior year in college. And uh, <clears throat> as it turned out, they were uh, the uh, university was looking to place an intern um, at the uh, Blythe Eastman Dillon, um, who was the parent company of Eastman Dillon Union Securities and East Dill, uh, East Dill at the time, East Dill Realty. And uh, power branding, I went in to, uh, you know, check it out and out tumbled this really attractive uh, brochure 
Um, ben Lambert, the founder of the industry and uh, happened to have been an art major and was highly influenced by brand. And, and that brand caught my eye. And I thought this is something that was good looking people and big buildings in Central Park. And I thought, you know, this this could be good. And uh, I ended up uh, going down and and uh, meeting with uh, the then head of the West Coast, uh, who I convinced um, could hire me for free and get a great deal out of it. I, I'm not sure it was such a good deal, uh, even if it was for free, uh, because I didn't really know that much uh, to be to be sure. But um, the very first day of uh, my internship, which was April 3rd, 1978, um, I came walking out of the bathroom of, uh, of uh, about 9.30 in the morning, my very first day. Uh, and down the hall comes Ben Lambert, the, the founder of the firm, um, who was at least eight feet tall, perfectly uh, tailored, um, just a, a cut above anything I had ever come across. And and uh, as I'm wiping my hand off to try and take the nervous perspiration uh, away, I uh, stuck out my hand and introduced myself, Mr. Lambert, my name is Roy March, uh, and I just started here. And he looked at me and he said, listen, kid, you... You made more money for this firm today than you have in your pocket. And anybody who knew who Ben Lambert was or knows of Ben Lambert wouldn't know that that would be a, the first challenge that would come out of his mouth. And I said, well, Mr. Lambert, I don't know if, whether I've made more money for the firm than I have in my pocket, but I do know that I probably made more money for the firm than I'm getting paid on working for free. That little exchange, he looked at me and he said, listen, I like you, kid. He goes, remember two things. One, he's still has the God-given right to every piece of business in the universe, now go earn it. Secondly, never leave a meeting without asking for the order. And that was my introduction to Eastill at 9.30 in the morning, and uh, my introduction to Ben Lambert, the founder of the industry and ultimately the founder of, of the firm. And uh, that was uh, 40, now going on uh, middle of the, my 46th year here at Eastill. I obviously didn't go back to business school, um, and one look at me, I couldn't get a job anywhere else. And so here I am. So that, that's just fascinating. So when you went to Blythe Eastman slash Eastill, did you know that you would focus on real estate or was the chance meeting with Ben? No, it was it was basically um, uh, that that I was going to get experience because I was convinced I was going to you know apply to business school and what happened was at the end of that uh, three-month period I got units to graduate and uh, and I got a, a job offer for an outstanding thousand dollars a month um, which was basically secretarial pay and again I would I would suggest that maybe they were over investing in me at the time and is that because they were mostly only hiring MBAs not or or East Coast no, I think it was just, I just, I just think that they saw, you know, and in fact, interestingly enough, uh, Ben Lambert, for whatever reason, kept the original uh, memo that was written by Gordon Swanson asking whether or not you know, I could be brought on for free. And uh, on my 40th anniversary uh, at the firm, he handed it over to me. So he still had it with his brown scrawl uh, because he always, uh, having been a graduate of Brown, he always uh, wrote brown pen. Um, and, uh, it was, you know, go ahead. I don't think it's taken a chance. He may be young, but just make sure it's worthwhile for him. So, um, I just, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and realize that, you know, with a little hard work and, and dedication, um, that, uh, I could do this. 
um, with the, the right leadership and, and, and right mentorship. So I know that Ben was one of your great mentors and was obviously, yep. you say, one of the ultimate icons in our industry. Yep. How, how did that mentorship develop? And, you know, what are some of the key lessons he taught you? Yeah, well, I think that, um, that, that I mean, he, he founded this industry of real estate investment banking. And the distinction really was there was a there was a healthy uh, brokerage um, industry, services industry, if you will, that existed between mortgage banking and uh, investment sales. But given the roots of how he grew up um, in the business, um, it was really under Disc Dean, who was uh, at uh, Eastman Dillon for a period of time before he went over to start CPI. Uh, it, there was a sale leaseback market that had a, little, a different degree of uh, sophistication in terms of credit underwriting and corporate underwriting in particular that um, was a, was more of a structured product, if you will. And he felt like um, that the, the corporate um, clients of Eastman Dillon um, prior to Eastman, Blythe Eastman Dillon, that they would um, understand, you know, in essence, how to take real assets and turn them into, um, you know, financeable assets, not just uh, standing stock that had no return uh, potential. And to be able to then, in essence, turn around and use a lower cost of capital than maybe even their corporate cost of capital might be. And so he was ingrained in this notion of, uh, of, of uh, uh, an investment banking uh, approach to things. Um, and, and the distinction is that uh, it's a salary plus an incentive bonus that is discretionary. And that discretion was really based on uh, whether or not you perform for clients. And if the, it was very client-centric, if, if the, the uh, client won, the firm would win. If the firm would win, the team would win. And if the team won, the individuals would win. But it was an all for one, one for all for the benefit of the client uh, that ultimately translated into a collaboration that you could in essence, get people to work cross lines and use the best relationships uh, and the best knowledge uh, to ultimately uh, develop the best outcome for clients. And I assume that's way before Whitehall and Morgan Stanley, did, you know, did everything that we know. That well, Morgan today. Stanley, actually, Buzz McCoy, who was uh, uh, was at Morgan Stanley, and they purchased Brooks Harvey, which is a mortgage banking firm, and then he became head of of that. But in his his uh, book on the, the, the history of uh, real estate investment banking, he gives Ben credit for being the first um, to have uh, come up with it. But, but uh, Brooks Harvey slash Morgan Stanley ultimately was uh, soon on the heels of it. But it was certainly before Goldman Sachs and and uh, the big investment banks got involved. Got it. So you start out as a low paid um, junior person at Blythe Eastman Dillon. Tell us a little bit about how you figured out how to do deals and, and, you know, what that path looked like. Yeah, I think, um, you know, interestingly enough, um, I, I, I uh, learned a lot from Ben, but what I, what I maybe learned most of, and, and I share this with some of our young folks is, <clears throat> I, I, I learned the art of the sale, um, if you will, um, back in high school when I was working at a clothing store. And so if, uh, and, and um, I grew up um, on uh, threadbare um, clothing uh, where I lived. And so my goal was to pull myself out of that. So I got a job at kind of the cool 
um, clothing store for high school and college kids. And it was actually called College High Shops all over town in South Sacramento. Um, and that was the beginning of my burgeoning male model career, just so you know, Jay. Um, I, I've done print work, uh, editorial and the like. But uh, in any event, um, what, what, what uh, it taught me was to listen to uh, the customer, if you will, and, and to, um, as my son says, you know, fall in love with your customer, never try and sell them a thing. Listen to what they're headed towards, try and help them um, develop, you know, an, an outcome that they really um, desire. And then just make sure you know your product well enough that uh, you can kind of put those things in front of them while they're in the changing room, you know, putting on uh, a pair of Levi jeans, show them a shirt that might go along with a pair of socks, a belt, and and maybe a sweater. And so um, suggestive selling uh, and being proactive in that process um, was probably, you know, one of the key things. And then with Ben, it was all about the integrity of a deal. And it was, you know, about building relationships and building your own business through building a client's business and treating them as partners um, in, in what you do and being that trusted advisor that it was uh, decades uh, of building as opposed to ultimately candidly um, deals. And so it was, you know, that integrity of a relationship and the integrity of your service and having a passion for excellence, um, all of that came you know, by assimilation with Ben, uh, ultimately, as the, the 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 culture purveyor, if you will, and culture carrier of the firm, and and I was lucky enough to have a relationship with him that became a father son relationship, that in the last uh, you know candidly sixteen years of his life, um, I was the father and he was the son, uh, and it was a beautiful beautiful thing. I was blessed to be able to have that. In fact, I'm sitting right here. This is the founders' room. And I recreated his office um, as uh, part of a, a legacy to uh, what he stood for and, and what we should be standing for as a firm and as a culture. Great. So, I mean, no doubt that the client coming first and 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 the um, art of the deal, as you described it, is a one of the several keys to your and Estill's success. But I, I assume you would say, and this is part of what you did, right, that Knowing your client's business um, is also what makes you, you know, very successful. It's not enough, right? But, right. but so, how, so what? How did you get into the deep? Um, um, you know, you came out with an economics degree. You, I mean, there weren't maybe there were HP sevens back then, but there sure were an exercise no, for function calculators, right? So, so how did you get into really learning about the real estate? Yeah. I think that um, it, it's interesting because, you know, most people look at what we do and think of it as just a capital markets function. And I think that what Ben's vision was is how do you take the foundational real estate um, collateral, if you will, and, uh, and and create, in essence, a credit profile that ultimately can be translated into the capital market at, at the end of the day. But it, it, it it's ground up, if you will, uh, from that perspective. And so... I'd like to think that, you know, his vision was out locally in the locals in the service industry. And then ultimately his vision was that the what was a very local business in 1967, where you had local developers, local tenants, local financing sources. He foresaw the growth, the great growth in our economy 
and the companies that would grow with it that would require tendencies across regions, uh, states, and ultimately nations for that matter. And that ultimately that was going to take a, a degree of capital that was not as local as had been um, ultimately uh, and previously been tapped. And it became uh, a regional, national, and then international capital market. And so it's really understanding both sides of it. Fundamentally, you know, what 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 is the the real estate collateral, and and how do you create a relative value story around it, and then finding the capital that you know in those days it was just general account uh, life insurance companies. In fact, behind me, there's the very first institutional joint venture that was ever done with John Portman, uh, Trammell Crow, um, the Rockefellers, and. Uh, um, and Prudential was brought in, and it's Embarcadero One uh, in San Francisco, along with the original Hyatt. Um, but it was it was understanding that it was going to require larger dollars, larger scale, and more more sophistication than what was being done at the at the local levels. And then um, creating uh, on both sides that you know what what is it that you're trying to accomplish with you know, your investment of these annuities at the time. And then ultimately, what are you trying to accomplish in terms of cost of capital that was going to be required to deliver, um, you know, the assets themselves. And so I think it's that perfect blend. And when I look at it in the, in, against an investment banking background, that's a top-down uh, analysis. And it's really more what I'll call, dare I say, a, 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 a desktop market analysis as opposed to an in-depth fundamental. And he bred uh, a culture of, of having both sides of the brain, if you will, working. And when you think about uh, the real estate business just in, in general, um, you, you really need to solve for the why. Why do people want to live, work, play, uh, recreate, <coughs> uh, shop, um, uh, distribute? What, why do they want to be where they, where they want to be and what do they want to be in? And when you think of it in those terms, understanding human anthropology is probably the most important thing somebody could understand in our business. It's what what creates that human emotion, that human decision-making process. So understanding people first and foremost, and that only comes with spending time and being in front of them and creating relationships that, again, are long-term, not short-lived. Right. And so that was, that was his philosophy. And, you know, again, he was a he was a fine art major at Brown, so I joked with him often that he was sculpting deals, um, you know, out of out of clay, uh, blocks of clay. And at the end of the day, um, you know, that's sort of when you look at our culture, that's mostly what you see. You'll 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 find some technicians down, you know, in the weeds providing support uh, for these important outcomes. But at the end of the day, it's really about people um, and understanding what's going to motivate people to invest. Uh, to lend, um, to ultimately borrow uh, and bring in partners and come up with the optimal outcome. And, you know, we assess this every day. I mean, people say, well, gosh, you really you really don't <clears throat> have much at risk, do you, because you're taking on an agency role. And I joke that we take on brand risk. Every single person in this firm is responsible for the brand because we don't get away with being a bad broker in a, in a given sector or city. We're uh, being judged as a as a firm because that's what we bring. We bring not a team but an entire organization to bear with everything that we have in a collaborative basis. Again, all for one, one for all, for the benefit of the client. And in doing so, um, you 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 know, we start off by understanding you know 
what the asset is and what's the fundamental story behind the asset. What is the owner's objectives and aspirations? And what is the capital market backdrop that ultimately allows for that? And then kind of with those broad, three broad strokes, it's then how do you, you know, reimagine or imagine, you know, creatively what can be done and candidly developing that and then finding yourself ultimately growing in a strategic basic basis to be able to ultimately find yourself in, uh, you know, in the chairs of those CEOs uh, in the C-suites to understand what their strategy is, help them with their strategy. And then it's as easy as getting to the train station, you know, in time, not too soon, not too late. Um, And uh, that takes probably just figuring out who's printing the train schedule. Yeah, right. Timing's everything, but I wouldn't say it's easy. But so let's, so your career um, for the past 40 plus years, right? As you, you, you what do you say, say? What do you say? I've only got you beat by a few, but yeah. so we've seen five or six cycles starting back from the high interest rate cycle to the 1980s, GFC, you know, today. So how has your um, thinking and approach to the business, um, you know, matured and changed during that period? Yeah, I think that um, experience uh, obviously helps. And again, you know, being able to kind of learn at the hand of uh, a person who was creatively thinking about um, how to anticipate where the world was going and then try and get there uh, on time. But I I tell the story. In fact, uh, most of the time when I'm starting out conversations, particularly in these challenging times, I ask people if they remember where they were in March of 1980. And there aren't a lot of hands anymore, Jay. Um, But I remind them that I was at an MAI course in Boulder, Colorado, in a phone booth holding a roll of dimes and uh, and with a rotor phone, anxiously awaiting um, a uh, an approval of an investment committee um, at Northwestern Mutual uh, that was uh, going to sign off on a redevelopment joint venture of the Halakalani Hotel in Hawaii. And Mason Ross, who was head at the time, basically said, obviously, you haven't seen the news, but uh, Volcker has just... Um, increase the discount rate to 20%. I think I dropped the roll of dimes and thought, you know, my my fledgling career at Eastill and in this business was uh, probably over. And the fact is, is that, um, you know, we pivoted to something that was going to be uh, all cash transactions. We saw that the Japanese were starting to come into the States and their, and their entry point, candidly, was going to be in a place like Hawaii. And we did a, 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 a redevelopment venture with Mitsui Fudasan, um, which was their first investment uh, in the U.S. And uh, it's one of the most valuable pieces of real estate. And so I can take you through 1986 tax law changes. I can take you through, uh, you know, the late 80s with the modern portfolio theory and all the money that came out of pension funds into alternatives slash real estate at the same time where there was a an abundance of uh, capital as a result of the savings and loan um, uh, deregulation. And at the same time, the Japanese uh, in, uh, construction companies were dropping a lot of uh, yen in the market, uh, 50 cent dollars, if you will, uh, being able to, uh, in essence, get um, uh, uh, credit in Japan for their uh, for their construction work here. So we ended up with an oversupply issue because there was just too much money in the system. So 
there you have there you have the 90s and, and the commercial real estate led recession. And then 1998 with uh, the collapse of uh, LTCM and that was your first programmatic, people call it machine learning now, AI, whatever. They had a programmatic uh, um, situation where they, they were in essence RV, trying to ARB uh, currencies and, and, uh, and uh, sovereign wealth debt. And it had two standard deviations. And these were, you've seen, you've read the book, When Genius Failed, um, two Nobel uh, Prize winners in economics were two of the three principles there. And uh, when the bot broke in, in uh, 87, um, it started a, a, a bit of a, a cascade. But then when the ruble broke, all bets were off. And so credit default uh, swaps and the like all just blew up. And it was the first time the United States government stepped in and, and provided support um, to, to, at the time, uh, the global markets were teetering, to be honest. And then you kind of roll into uh, you know uh, the early two thousands and and, uh, uh, and and then two thousand and seven two thousand eight and then you know you you see what, what the GFC did to to the world and then you have a COVID which was a mini recession if you will and then created this influx of cash that we're in capital that we're now trying to get ourselves out from underneath. Uh, in terms of the amount and the inflation that it's created. But what you learn is real estate is resilient. And real estate has two primary characteristics that in balance um, make it a terrific asset class. Um, keep in mind, it was always an alternative. It's really become a legitimate asset class with the advent of securitization, which uh, in many ways started in, 19, in the early 1980s with Solomon Brothers doing for Olympia, New York, uh, uh, two or three of the first, uh, um, in essence, securitizations. And then in 1986, when we sold a half interest to Nomura Securities, we were doing, uh, in essence, participating uh, bonds and convertible uh, bonds that were secured by uh, the real estate and, and ultimately distributed into the high net worth and institutional markets in Japan. Um, and then 94, with uh, RTC uh, and and all that happened there, securitization really came to the fore, both on the equity and the debt side. And uh, it was, you know, kind of the orderly or disorderly um, unwind of, you know, the savings and loan industry in many respects. And the government took control of it. But what we find is that um, it, it provides income and it's a mitigant to, if not um, a hedge against inflation. And again, in balance, when we don't have you know, outside factors often that uh, ultimately impact that balance. Um, it, it, it comes back and not all sectors, but if you look at the, 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 uh, the, the, the statistics, the values, again, not in all sectors, we're gonna see in office that there's gonna be some lagging in that, but overall real estate values go up above the level that they were at prior to the dip that occurred as a result of whatever the exogenous impact was. And, and I would consider um, a lot of what happened uh, that was the commercial real estate led was an exogenous impact that happened to be focused on our industry. So you kind of kind of learn to pivot and anticipate and then figure out what, what the challenges are and then find the solutions. So that was a great summary, of course, of what people who've been around as long as you and I have experienced. So here we sit, right, three and a half years right after the beginning of the COVID recession, whatever you want to call it. 
with lots of challenges, as you know better than anybody. And 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 there's no nobody better and no company better with their fingers on you know what's happening in the marketplace. What, what do you see happening over the next one year, two year, five years? What you know? How do we get back to just like like you say? It seems after every time it does come back, just like it did after the GFC, and we and we and sales came back after all those dips for 08, 09, and ten. Here we are in twenty three with pretty bad you know fundamentals on the office side and concerns about our cities. What's your, you know, thought for where we're going in the next several years? Well, and I think that you try to you need to try and find and trace back kind of what the origins of the problem uh, in many ways. Um, and COVID, again, being an outside factor that has changed the fundamentals uh, that um, that uh, in, in in office and in particular what I'll call commodity office um, and. Um, and, and, and that aside, and I'll come back to it. But as a result of COVID uh, and the tremendous amount of, of uh, liquidity that was pushed into the market, um, you created uh, a lot of growth and very low interest rates. And I sort of joked that it was like, you know, mixing ecstasy with uh, white lightning when you had zero uh, percent interest rates and double digit growth rates. You put those two things together, it's a happy party, but there's a big hangover. And they uh, they did what they needed to do to kind of keep the, the world afloat. And, and I do believe the world benefited from what the what the Fed did. Um, and but they they didn't uh, kind of pump the brakes fast enough uh, at the end of the day. And and so it's it's just unprecedented rate uh, and pace of, of the rate increases, if you will. Um, as much as the absolute numbers themselves. It didn't allow the market to kind of adjust to, to higher interest rates. And so you had, you know, 500 basis points in 14 months. I mean, unprecedented. What did that do? It created a huge sell-off in the fixed income market. And that created two things. It was a denominator effect for uh, equities uh, and uh, commercial real estate uh, and the alternatives. And then at the same time, you've got, um, QT, uh, which they they tried to kind of get back, which ultimately is burning off ninety five billion dollars a month, um, but is uh, taking liquidity out of out of the market at the end of the day. At the same time, you had the regulators stepping in and basically saying, "We've got issues. We we have potential issues coming up here with the commercial real estate because of what they were reading and seeing in the office market, and it is one of the larger stocks, largest stocks." of any of the uh, of the uh, uh, sectors. And you put all those things together and you just have a credit crunch, a, a very, very tight credit crunch that uh, ultimately is going on right now. And then throw in, if you want, another billion and a half, uh, a trillion and a half of, of uh, deficit spending, uh, closer to two now. And you've got uh, a mix for a mess. And that's what we we're finding right now it's messy and there you know the primary focus is uh, around office and what that impact's going to have to um ultimately uh, um the banks in particular uh but institutions in general that that are uh, providing capital to the real estate industry and when you when you but when you dig down into it there were a lot of things that you know we we kept saying nothing's broken yet well what broke was, you know, you had the Federal Reserve applauding themselves uh, for, you know, basically transitioning and managing this event. And they didn't see the impact that it was going to have on 
on uh, bank balance sheets, in particular, those balance sheets that were um, um, ultimately um, fragile, if you will. And if you look fundamentally at SVB or Republic or any of the rest of them that have come to the failure, um, they basically had really good businesses that uh, mismanaged their assets and liabilities. And with the markdown as a result of the of the uh, um, drop in value of fixed income, you had you know people were out of out of capital uh, at the end of the day. A B. It was heightened by the fact that you could you could jump into a money market account, uh, you know, at four to five percent um, versus your savings account that was, you know, ultimately, um, you know, virtually nothing. And the banks didn't didn't adjust to that. Part of it was they couldn't because of the liabilities they had and and, and their source of capital. So they lost the deposits, and with that run on the bank, if you will, um, you know you have these regional banks that are under a lot of stress. These regional banks are the uh, are the uh, heartbeat of, uh, of of these developers and small business, which you know impact the economy in general, and severely impact you know the 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 local and regional developer who's building industrial and multifamily and the like. Most of that's coming out of these regional banks, not the big banks. And they're also the syndication banks that ultimately uh, plug in. So you've got a, a, a banking system that is healthy uh, at the big bank level. You've got regional banks that are have some vulnerability still uh, within them, but all of them are, you know, constipated to say uh, to to use probably an inappropriate word. But the fact is, is that no one's paying off. <laughs> and uh, and everybody's looking to restructure. Um, uh, a lot of people bought with floating rate debt uh, with caps that are burning off because they bought two to three years, not four to six. And as a result, you've got, again, this pressure um, of of uh, where where's the source of liquidity going to come? And I think it's going to come through shadow uh, banks. Um, I think that um, that we're going to we're going to have to see that in order to see our way through before the banks can kind of heal themselves uh, and be back in business. I think the banks are healthy enough to actually move a lot of uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, credit risk in their portfolio. But for the fact that valuations haven't matched uh, where marks have uh, have been. And I think that that most of these banks are, again, perfectly healthy to be able to take the impact and they have plenty of capital take the impact of what they're going to have to do to move some of these things off their balance sheet but it's created you know uh, a liquidity crunch and then again with the burn off of of the banks of the fed's balance sheet um along with these high rates um it's you know it's it's messy it's really messy and so, if, so that's if the you look at if you look at let me just take you through what, what are what are the favorable uh, things right so um, you've got global logistics, which you know, continues to be with all of the supply chain issues that uh, uh, are, are out there and uh, uh, nearshoring, if not onshoring. Um, you've got um, you know technology companies that you know are continuing to innovate, and whether it's AI or ultimately um, quantum computing, you're going to have great demand, I believe, in in knowledge markets where a lot of the tech markets have been. And that's going to take a, a great deal of uh, digital infrastructure. Um, and so, uh, and these things are, are big, big, big capital 
um, um, take big capital requirements. And so um, you're going to need not just the real estate industry, but you're going to need infrastructure. You're going to need a bond market that's going to underwrite the credit of these hyperscalers that ultimately are investing 3x into these buildings that they're uh, uh, being provided. Uh, but it's a it's a it's an arms race at the end of the day to kind of get there first um, and to get there, you know, with the best talent. So I think that those areas and I think that, you know, the multifamily sector as a result of a little bit of not a little bit, but a lack of building. Um, there are some overbuilt markets, no question. But because there hasn't been a lot of available capital for that development, um, there's there's not a lot of supply um, that's out there. It's not a lot of supply in office. Um, the retail markets, for example, are a good relative value play when um, you look at particularly open air uh, retail trading wide of industrial. When in fact, aren't they one of the best? You know, uh, infill distribution and with clicks and bricks uh, these days, um, it it makes uh, all the sense in the world. So. There are there are some sectors that are going to do very very well in all this, and it's going to take a while to heal what I'll call the commodity. On the other hand, you know premium rents uh, uh, for new build, you know uh, ESG, uh, you know uh, places that people want uh, the the want to be in, uh, so that they can attract workers back. Um, that's that's going to be legit, and uh, um, so not all offices created equal. Um, I think that uh, people would like to see uh, a lot of this office converted into residential. Uh, you know, not all uh, buildings are created equal in terms of that conversion potential. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's certainly not a doomsday scenario. Um, well, the real estate industry, as I say, is resilient, and through a variety of things, um, you know, creative financing, uh, uh, the federal pro government probably stepping in here sooner versus later, particularly with some of these other exogenous factors, like what's going on, the horror that's going on in uh, Israel um, in, in particular right now, and, and uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, conflict. I mean, the, you, I think you want, you'll see treasury uh, treasuries come in because the people are going to want a safe rate um, in this environment. Spreads are going to come in and I think that maybe just some of these things from the outside world may help manage our rates down uh, without the Fed having to do anything. Um, but we'll 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 see. We'll see. So, we'll adapt. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. There's no doubt there are some good stories out, out there, as you said, multifamily logistics. Yeah. You know, grocery anchored shopping centers, as you well know. But let's just just go back to office for one, one minute. You had a. Ter terrific quote that I've repeated to a lot of people from back in either May or June of 2020, when you were on a, a webinar with um, Mike Bassatelli and I think Peter Linneman, where it was early, we didn't know what was going to happen, but your comment was, you can't build culture remotely. And and, and here I we think, I think I, I think my specific quote is, you can't, uh, you can't develop culture virtually. Okay. So, but yeah, I, I mean, close enough. Close right. Enough. It's so, a good so here we sit, right, with this um, pretty significant challenge of getting people to return to the office. I don't say return to work, return to the office, right? Um, and what does that mean for these, particularly, as you say, commodity of second, third generation office buildings? What does it mean, if not more importantly, for our great cities uh, and getting people to come back and do 
DC and LA and San Francisco and Chicago where everybody's having issues. Um, somebody said to me, I'm interested in your view of this, that the, the, just the things you've talked about on the capital stack and the credit crunch, that the problem today with the offices or the challenge is 80% interest rates, 20% return to office. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if that's the right proportion, but uh, again, you know, here I am sitting in a cave with a block of stone trying to create a wheel. So I'm, I'm, you know, of a different generation, but I just think that, you know, um, innovation comes with collaboration. And at the end of the day, um, there are no doubt um, certain functions that can be done remotely. There's no doubt in my mind that that can happen. But I believe that those companies that ultimately will not only prevail, but um, um, be, be, be most successful are going to be those that bring the right people together to innovate. And uh, I had a, uh, an interesting conversation around that uh, with somebody uh, because it was, it was about what's going on with AI and quantum computing. And it's interesting because one of the challenges uh, in, in several of my mentors um, uh, and, and uh, influencers uh, have come out of the military and have been, you know, in high-ranking places, General McChrystal in particular, uh, who was head of JSOC. And uh, the collaboration and communication um, and information flow was vital. And um, and then um, <clears throat> Stavridis, uh, the former Supreme Commander of NATO, has also been, you know, uh, involved with a lot of stuff that we've done around leadership and the like. And they'll both tell you that, um, you know, uh, the, the, the biggest one of the biggest risks to national security is a, a an unhealthy economy and that at the end of the day an economy needs to be functional in order to actually provide you know the the, the goods and services that are required to to uh, put up a strong national um, defense and national security and as we find out to fund other people's um, national security as well and after we thanked him, he said, make sure you're thanking your EMTs and your and your uh, doctors and nurses and, and all those that really contribute something to society. But thank yourselves a bit because you house the global economy. And at the end of the day, if we actually put ourselves in that position, what do we what do we do to make our economy the most productive as it could be so that we can and, and the economies of the world so that we can, you know, all live. Uh, you know, in a healthy economic environment, which generally speaking, uh, uh, you know, prevents uh, human conflict uh, at the end of the day, those that have versus those that have not and that, that gap that occurs. So um, there, there's, a, there's a real need, I think, for, you know, being able to be on the cutting edge of life sciences, of information technology. When you think about what's going on with AI and quantum computing, in fact, and this is a little bit of my soapbox, but there's a thing called um, accumulate now, uh, decrypt later, which is the, the thought that um, um, uh, decryption may be working faster than encryption can provide the security. Um, and therefore, it becomes a bit of an arms race around who gets to the technology fastest and first at the end of the day. And so I've asked that question of, of, uh, of these gentlemen who think of things in those terms and they acknowledge that it may be the most important thing that people are looking at. And so you ask the question, well, you've got a state 
that's supplying uh, uh, all the capital in the world towards getting there first versus you know the west if you will that is is ultimately looking at um things you know perhaps more dispersed interestingly enough his his view is no no everybody's going to come have to come together in order for this to work i.e east and west um in order for it to come together but um what we saw during covid was that there were uh, that there were uh, faster advances made in a collaborative Western world than there in, in, in vaccine and, and uh, efficacy and the like than there were, you know, in, in more of a siloed environment. And so um, I think that this all comes back, though, to collaboration. And if you talk to, I just came back from a, uh, a, a, a sponsor conference uh, that focused on technology. And, and if you think Think about what the demand is going to be for data and information and um, ultimately who's going to drive that it's going to be maybe a different type of office worker in a different locale but it's going to be it's going to take collaboration in order to get there yep. okay well sorry for the long-winded answer no 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 i'd love to continue. You got me on my soapbox Just, i'd love to continue this discussion for, for a long lot, lots of reasons but we should probably draw to a close i've got a couple of yep. questions for you so as you look back, what's the best deal advice that you've ever got and from whom? Yeah, um, I think it's probably been little bits from a lot of people and, and as much through, um, through uh, assimilation. Um, again, the, you know, listening to and uh, trying to understand, um, you know, uh, a, a client's uh, needs uh, first and foremost, and then understanding you know what what the asset or assets or company uh, in essence uh, provide for that, and then looking at it from a capital markets perspective. But uh, the uh, the best piece of advice that has helped me in the last um, probably several years is. It came from General Stanley McChrystal, and I, I was fortunate enough to be asked uh, to, uh, in essence, interview him for a book release uh, at a um, presidential library, a very conservative crowd. And uh, uh, there was 45 minutes, kind of a Charlie Rose, uh, you know, get together and um, um, get or conversation, and then uh, an open mic for 15 minutes. And first kid up is a 18 year old kid, skinny little tie gripping the book, basically saying, you know, General Crystal, I've seen every one of your podcasts, uh, your TED Talks, read your books. I just graduated from high school this morning. I've enlisted in the Army and I'm um, considering a, uh, a, uh, uh, a career in either uh, one of the services or the agent and an agency. Do you have any advice for me? And after thanking him for his commitment to service, that son, if I could give you any advice, the same advice I'd give to anyone, which is develop the deepest sense of empathy you possibly can for the people you work with, you work for, and who work for you. And the whole crowd is sort of like, because they, they're used to the McRaven, make your bed, you know, go through the, you know, the, the disciplines of your day. And so afterwards, I pulled him aside. And I said, wow, what was that all about? You know, and he said, well, um, I was asking young men and women to risk their lives uh, for our freedoms and the freedoms of those we were protecting. Um, I had to put myself in their shoes, literally, the definition of empathy. So he was on mission every night on somebody's shoulder, understanding what he was asking people to do. And I said, wow, you know 
didn't expect that, but uh, that's fantastic. And he went on to say, and he even felt that for, uh, in essence, uh, many of the enemy, that he was after the perpetrators of terror, not the people who were drafted into it and whose families were being held hostage. They didn't believe necessarily in a religion or in a country or in a cause. They were trying to just get through what they could. And so he he his he he was trying to create as little collateral damage for the people who were not um not not knowingly uh, being drafted into or not accepting being drafted into it, and I, I think that empathy is uh you know one of the things I've learned from him, and as I've gone through then you know this COVID scare, which um uh, is was was more than a scare, it was um it was tragic, um. You know, trying to help people get through this by understanding that we all get through things, right? And and things are up and to the right, generally speaking. We get stronger when we go through struggle, and uh, and we ultimately come out of it uh, better human beings, hopefully, and better um, professionals uh, alongside of that. And if you can, that's sort of our key here, which is if you can, in essence, uh, work in a place where your values are the same as the company you work with and the, and the people you work around, you trust them and you admire them and you are loyal to them and you are serving a purpose um, uh, of uh, truth seeking, if you will, and, and the right outcomes that, that it's pretty good. And then when you put that together with a, a guy by the name of Cicero, who uh, ultimately uh, you know, wrote, wrote a note to his son right before he was beheaded, um, basically saying, um, you know, gratitude is not only uh, the greatest of, of uh, commentary, but at the end of the day, it's the parent of all other virtues. And so um, yeah. if you believe in gratitude and understand uh, and, and uh, humble yourselves to how blessed we are to live in this country, um, to live in this free world, if you will, and to be able to, uh, you know, in essence, wake up every morning with excitement and enthusiasm about the, the human condition. And I think that's the best advice anybody could have ever given. Well, I, I think I'm going to stop there because I don't want to um, um, diffuse or reduce the significance of the, and, and the enlightenment of what you just shared with us. So, Ray, Roy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know it will be of great value to our members in the college as well as others who will see it. And um, I look forward to seeing you at ULI. And, and well, I appreciate the opportunity. And, and, and any of you who feel the same calling, if you will, um, let's let's do this together. Um, let's let's uh, let's get us all through this uh, together by giving good advice um, with people's uh, best interests in mind. Amen. Thank you.